Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Welcome everyone. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here and it's a great privilege to be able to share with you today, particularly because we are starting today a new book. We're starting the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, and our title for this book, I wonder if we could turn some of these lights down, can you guys see? Oh, thanks, Quartz. The book of Ruth, and our title for the book is Challenges, Choices, and God's Great Providence. I wonder if I could invite you to say that with me, Challenges, Choices, and God's great providence. Myself and Pastor E are going to do something just towards the end, but I'd like to share with you just a, a short verse from a song that we wrote about 15 years ago. And it talks about being in a difficult place, being in a place of desperation. And pretty much that's how the chorus of the song goes. It goes, desperation. It drove me to my knees. I cried, please, Lord, won't you help me? I know he heard my plea. And when the way out I just could not see, I cried, Lord, deliver me. And through his love, he lifted me. Some people are in frustration because life is like a safe and they don't know the combination They're looking for love in all the wrong places. I see discouraged faces amongst all the races. Now, some are black. Wait, you're right. Some are white. Some are prejudiced and some fight to unite. Some are victims and some are criminals. Some are out to use and some are sadly abused. Some are filled with mental conflicts within. They can't find a way out. The situation's no win. And some are working their fingers to the bone just in order to eat, struggling to make ends meet. Some are guilty, some are innocent, some are doing time, and some are organized, organized crime. I thank God that he's always on time, he's never late, even when the circumstances, the situation is desperate. What I want us to be encouraged by, at least in terms of this first chapter, is that behind every cloud there's always a silver lining. How many of you know... Precious jewels always shine brighter against the dark backdrop. Precious jewels always shine brighter against the dark backdrop. And the title for this first chapter for our message is Light in the Midst of Dark Days. And hopefully this will be an encouragement to all of us, if not now, (laughs) at some point in our lives. Amen. Amen. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees all things and knows all things and has everything completely and utterly and totally under control. And we praise you for that this morning and we thank you that we can find confidence in you regardless of our circumstances. And we thank you for your word and how this beautifully illustrates this, especially in Ruth chapter 1. Would you help us as we 
Seek you, Lord, and your will and your purpose for our lives as we look at your wonderful word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, light in the midst of dark days. Turn with me to Ruth, hopefully, chapter 1. And I'm going to read starting at verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, two, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set up from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may... That, you may, that they may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God My God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if everything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? 
So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Light in the midst of dark days. I mean, if you know the Bible, is one big story. And it's one big story that's made up of little stories. So let's zoom out and remind ourselves of the big story before we zoom in and look at Ruth, this little short story. The big story we summarize in four words, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. You want a summary of the whole Bible? There it is in four words. We've talked about that in weeks past. And creation in a very, very, very general sense, let's say, is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then chapter 3, halfway through chapter 3, we've only been two, out, two, 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 two chapters since the creation and, and what happens to man. He, he's, he falls, he stumbles, right? And he sins, him and his wife. And that's why we call it the fall. Two and a half chapters in. But right on the back of man's fall, as I look at Daniel, I remember because he actually done verse 15 in chapter 3 when we were doing discipleship ministry training. In, in verse 15, God, if you like, steps in like da 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 to the rescue. And he makes a promise then that he himself will, com- will, 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 will contribute to fulfilling later on in human history. And... The rest of your Bible after Genesis 3.15 is all about redemption. It's all about how God's going to bring back fallen man who he created. And he's going to bring about at the end a new creation where there is going to be no more sin, no more tears, no more dying, no more pain. That's the storyline of the Bible. And... That's the big picture. As we zoom in now gradually, if you like, moving from the big picture to the smaller picture, you know what I'm saying, down to this time that that this book describes, which is about 1200 BC, about 1,000 years before Jesus. Now to zoom down, a bit like Google Maps, right? Zoom right down from the macro to the micro. The story of Ruth falls under this category of redemption. Remember, this is the big part of your Bible. Actually, this is a mini story of redemption within the big story of redemption. We see redemption right in this, in this book. And it's, and it's actually a part of the road that leads to the greater redemption, as we'll find out in a few weeks' time. Now, this book plays a very important role from a prophetic point of view. And I'm saying this book is going to look forward to something that's going to come about in the future. Um, there's the mention of a particular place in the first few verses and then in the last verses. Anybody catch where that was? Begins with B. Bethlehem. Play. Richard mentioned last week the fact that places in the Bible are very, very significant very often. And Bethlehem is no, is no small matter. One of the key characters in this book is a redeemer, reminding us of someone who is going to come later. Another key character in the book 
is a Gentile. She's not even a Jew. She's not even a part of God's people. And this particular individual speaks about God's heart to those who are outside of his community and his desire to bring them in. We get a bit of a snapshot of God bringing those in who are on the outside. And this is going to prove to be incredibly significant, giving us a sneak peek into into how God does that. Now, rather than try to explain, I suspect, you know, all that takes place in the book in the intro, which is very tempting because there's a lot in here. How many of you know that? We're going to try and tell the story and allow the understanding to gradually unfold. But I will say that this book is much more than it than its title suggests. This book is much more than the sum of its parts. It's, it's about more than that which meets the eye. It has major and minor characters, but the fundamental focus isn't on any of them. The fundamental focus is on Jesus, who doesn't appear in the book in the way that we would potentially expect. He's not going to appear for another 1,200 years but we'll come to that. But apart from this prophetic kind of forward focus of the book, it's an important standalone story. These characters are real. They're, they're real people in a real place at a real time with real challenges and real choices that they're going to have to make. Now, when it comes to the, the reality of human existence... That is like pretty much like where we live. If you like, it's possible to say that there are three perspectives. The first perspective with regards to the reality of human existence and kind of where we live, where we're at, is r- random coincidence. It's like everything is random chance, some say. Nothing has purpose. There's no great cause. Everything that happens is haphazard and without rhyme or reason. Random, just coincidence. Like, what? Like, why am I here today? Why are you here today? Your children, your job, your future, like where you live. It's random. It's just, it's just chance. It's just happenstance. It's all chance and random coincidence, some say. Number two with regards to human experience, some say it's human preference or human choice. Your life is what it is based on the choices and the decisions that you make. See, you are where you are because of you. And there's no one else to to either blame or big up. There's no one else that to whom you can groan or should be glorified apart from you. Some say. And the the flip side of that coin is you are not who you are because of you, but you are who you are because of others. It's like other people's choices are that which has affected you. The reason you are the way you are is down to other people and their choices have affected you. The reality of your human existence is based on your parents who conceived you, the place where you were born, the family that you were born into, 
It's all based on how you were raised. It's all based on your relationships and how people have affected you and your friendships. They say that choices made by others and how they have affected you make you who you are today. Human preference. A random, random coincidence, human preference or human choices or the third perspective, which is God's providence. The third perspective says God's power is sustaining and guiding human destiny. Everything that happens, happens because God wills it to. Big things like earthquakes and like who's going to win the general election next year. Little things like what you ate for breakfast, what baseball cap you chose to put on this morning. Will Chelsea win the premiership? Little fit. God is controlling everything, large or small, significant and seemingly insignificant. Could be argued that God is controlling every single thing. Now, what I'd like to say is this little four chapter book is going to help us to, to think about these perspectives. Contrary to popular opinion, this book. You may have seen a few titles with regards to this book, like um, The Romantic Road to Redemption. I actually like that one. Um, but the thing is, what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to put the emphasis on romance. <laughs> See, this book is less about romance and more about loyalty. Um, really, we could say this book is about love, but every time you say love nowadays, people hear a different definition of love. I mean, even if you look in the dictionary, the dictionary definition of love is based on feelings and emotions. And I'm saying, oh, I'm in love with them. I can't eat and I can't sleep. I'm in love. <laughs> That's not the Bible definition of love. You know what I mean? So I hesitate to say that this book is about love, although it is about love if you're using the biblical definition. You know what I'm saying? Because genuine biblical love is about loyalty, isn't it? Loyalty, which is steadfast, being steadfast in allegiance and faithfulness. That's biblical love, which is actually a genuine expression of real love. So when I say love, many people hear romance. When the Bible says love, it speaks more about loyalty. And <clears throat> in this book, there are different types of love. Not just romantic, quote unquote, love. And I'm saying different types of love expressed in different relationships. It's not just boy and girl. We will see love between husbands and wives. Plural. We see love between parents and children. Children's love to their parents. We'll see a mother-in-law's love to a daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law's love to a mother-in-law. We'll see caught in couples. And how they love one another. But most importantly in this book, well, I should say penultimately important in this book is the love that people have for God. But that's penultimate. The ultimate love we see in this book is, guess what? 
is God's love for his people. So this book is about love. So here we go. Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Sometimes in our Bibles, we'll get these beautiful introductions that, that paint an amazing backdrop for the rest of the book. This is the case here in Judges chapter 1. In the day, Judges, in Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, I thought one of you guys would have picked me up. You probably heard it, but you didn't feel like you want to embarrass me, right? In the days when the judges ruled. Now, at this point, God has led his people, who are the Israelites, right, into the land that he promised to give them. And he did that based on his his covenant with Abraham years previously. Now, after Moses died, Joshua takes up the mantle and he, and he led the people and God fought for them and he blessed them as they began to take this promised land. After hundreds of years of being given that promise. But then after Joshua died, the Israelites, they forgot about all the amazing things that God had done for them. And they begin to worship idols. They begin to worship false gods. And, they begin to, and, and the thing is, they begin to worship the gods of the people that they're supposed to be dispossessing. They start to assimilate the culture of those that they should be contradicting. And they begin to worship their gods. And God warned them that this would happen. But the stubborn people, those stubborn people, not unlike maybe some of the people here in the room, particularly the person standing on stage with the mic. These stubborn people, they didn't listen to the warnings. So God stopped fighting for them, and their enemies began to overwhelm them. Each time the Israelites were in trouble, they called out to God. And God mercifully responded to them, and he sent them a judge. And the judge would deliver them, and then they would, after being delivered and things are going well again, they'd begin to worship idols, and then spiraled downward again, and began to worship idols again. And then they got back into this place where they were overwhelmed by their enemies. And then they cried out to God. And, and God said, Cha, I'm not going to help you anymore. No, he didn't say that. He responded by sending them a judge and would deliver them. And this cycle continued approximately about 16, 17 times. We call this the period of the judges, which is the book before our book, Ruth. If you have, a, Richard helped us by introducing the book of Judges, last week to give us a nice backdrop. But if you just turn back, if you've got a conventional Bible, one page to the last chapter of Judges, which is chapter 21, or flip back on your iPad. Um, Judges 21, look at the last verse, because the last verse again helps us. It says, in those days where there was no king in Israel, note the attitude of the people. Someone, some, some of them, did what was right in their own. The ladies did what was right in their own eyes. The old people did what was right in the. It doesn't say that. Does it? it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, there was no king in Israel at this point, and that's one of the phrases that are repeated. There was no king in Israel, and they have a terrible testimony. Israel are the covenant people of God. I mean, who was supposed to be their king? God was supposed to be their king. And you see, in other words, each person determined to live by their own standards, like 
What is right to me is right. Sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like 21st century general status quo. See, judges, the backdrop, where this, where this book, when this book is, 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 is a, what happens in the book of Ruth happens against the backdrop in the midst of a set of people who, judges is not a spiritually high period. God's people at this point are living in dark days. And this is exemplified by the next part of the verse. What does it say? It says, uh, you guys ain't following me. It says there's a, there was a famine in the land. I mean, things are bad spiritually, but the spiritual state of the nation has now spilled out into their, ex, their physical, literal experience. And now there's a famine in the land. Now, this is supposed to be the land that's flowing with... Milk and honey. It's argued that this famine was probably from God because of the state of God's people at the time. And was possibly an act of God's judgment. Israel had substituted Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, for Baal and Ashtaroth, who were both false gods of fertility. I mean, who evidently weren't providing for their worshippers. God, there's a famine. Psalm 105 verse 16 says, It was the Lord that brought the famine during the times of Egypt, during the time of Joseph, which was prior to this, right? He said the Lord brought that famine. In 2 Kings 8, at that particular period in time, which is a little bit further in the future, it says the Lord brought a seven-year famine. Two famines on the either, on, on, on other side, on the other sides of this famine... That both directly came from the Lord. So those are examples where the Bible is specific about the cause of a famine. Those two specifically came directly from the hand of the Lord. But in the Bible there are, there are 11 other famines. And they're not explicitly identified as coming from the Lord. Therefore, we can't say categorically that this particular famine and every famine is brought about by the Lord. But we have to say that God allows them. We can't necessarily explicitly say every single famine the Lord brought. But we have to say that, you know what, God allowed them. Just like we see difficult circumstances taking place in our lives, right? And everything that happens contributes to glorifying God. Everything. Every, large or small, good or bad, everything will contribute to glorifying God. So, so how do God's people respond during times of difficulty or even times of judgment or times of discipline from God? Well, the response ought to be repentance and faith, right? Well, how does our first character respond? Look at the next part of verse 1. And it says, A man of Bethlehem in Judea, of, of Judah, sorry, and he's an Israelite. We'll see that in a moment. He went to sojourn in a country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
This man responds in typical fashion as everybody else does at this point. How? As they see fit in their own eyes. He is a, a man of Bethlehem in Judah. That's him. He's an, he's an Israelite. He's an Ephrathite. He's from Bethlehem. And he makes a choice to leave his own land, to leave the promised land, to go to another land, a forbidden land. Where does he go? He goes to Moab. Now, Moab. Anybody know the, the origins of Moab? Whose name comes to mind when you think about Moab? Lot. Huh. It's reminiscent of a choice that was made by Lot and how he, he ended up creating this place called Moab. Because remember, Lot, him and Abraham had this drama. And Abraham's like, look, you know, I don't have no drama with you. We're family. Look, he says... You take a look at the land and you decide what you want. I don't want no more argument. Now, Abraham could have pulled rank because he's the uncle. He could have said, you know what? I'm going to take this land. You go over there. He didn't do that. He gave him the option. And instead of humbly saying, well, you're my uncle, you know what I'm saying? You choose. He said, he looked and he went, all right, let me see which part of this land is the best piece. And he went, hmm, over there. It looks fertile. It's like there was a blue haze over the city. The city was jumping. That's where he chose to go. But guess where he chose? Sodom. And at that point of the story, you don't really know nothing about Sodom. Sodom and its surrounding cities, Gomorrah was another one. And he chose to go there. And whilst he was in Sodom, things never went so good for Lot to the point where Abraham had to go in and drag, and, and did, uh, Abraham prayed for him, interceded for him, and the angel went in and dragged him out. His wife never made it. It was a mess. And he got out, Lot did, with his two daughters. And you know that things were messed up in Sodom because of the influence it had on them. They end up having sexual relations with their dad. And the dad has two sons. One, the dad, the girls, the daughters have two sons. One is called Ammon and the other one is called Moab. And he becomes the father of the Moabites. How many of you know Lot made a bad choice? Bad choices. Sometimes, sometimes we're confronted with choices, right? And sometimes we choose like Lot, don't we? We look and we survey and think, what is the best thing? How? In my eyes. And we make bad choices like Lot did, don't we? And so the thing is, who can we blame? Who can we blame that on when we end up in Sodom? We're going to blame that on our parents? Going to blame it on our spouse? We're going to blame it on the economic climate? I mean, like here, that's what the economic climate is bad. Israel are in a recession It's a famine. What would you do confronted with that choice? Well, this man makes a decision and he executes it. Leaving Judah to go to Moab. And notice, notice who is affected by his decision. 
his wife and his two kids. And another thing we find later on in chapter 3 is that he also loses in his, his inheritance. He loses his land and he loses his property because of this choice that he makes. Challenges, choices, and God's great provision. Look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So we got some names now, particularly for this gentleman. Um, oh, I should have showed you that. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Judges 21. But you looked at that, right, when you turned back in your Bible. Amen. So, this is the name of the man who leaves Elimelech, and his name means God is my king. Ain't that funny? At a time when there was no king, and people did everything that was right in their own eyes, his name is God is my king. Does it sound like God is his king? It's open to conjecture because we don't know everything that takes place in the story. But how about his wife? His wife's name is Naomi, and her name means pleasantness. Pleasantness who by the end of the chapter, if you were listening when I read, wants to change her name by depot, right? She's like, she wants to change her name to bitterness. Then, then they have two sons. One is Chilean or Killian. His name means puny or without vigor or to languish. Not such a good name. And then Marlon, which ain't really no better. It means infirmity or to be sick. And in my mind, I'm like, why would you name your children? It's like, they really need to take a note from our, from, our, from our West African brothers and sisters, right? When they name their kids, they give them some good names. <laughs> you know, in the hope that, they, that that would become a reality in their life, amen? Man, puny and sick. It says they went into the country of Moab, this family, right? And they remained there. But Elimelech... The husband of Naomi died. Whoa. And, and she was left, that is Naomi, with her two sons. And these sons took Moabite wives. Now, most, but not all the commentators agree that these sons, they transgressed the decree of the Lord... The decree of the word of the Lord in taking strange wives. That is wives who are not Jewish, right? Not Israeli. Non-Israelite women. And, and we can see the potential problems with that, can't we? Of these wives, what, was, what, was the, what is the potential danger of them marrying women who are from that culture? What do they do in that culture? They worship idols. They worship idols, and maybe these wives could end up encouraging their husbands to worship the gods of Moab, a little bit like who later on in scripture? Solomon. That was the warning God gave him. Don't take foreign wives, because they will end up leading you astray, you end up worshiping their gods, and so said, so done. Now it says, these took Moabite wives, the name of one of the wives was Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, no comment. And the name of the other 
was roof. Roof. Incidentally, you know what roof means? Sorry, you know what you know Orpah means? Orpah means stubbornness. Interesting. And what does roof mean? Look at what roof means. It means friend. Again, which is quite, inci- quite, quite, quite interesting. Especially as the story pans out, right? <clears throat> so they lived there how long? You guys ain't tracking with me. Ten years. Thank you. They lived there about ten years. Verse 5. And both Marlon and Killian died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Husband is dead. And both of her sons are now dead. Was that her husband's fault? Who told him to go to Moab? It's his fault why this has happened. He made a bad, tr- he made a bad decision bringing us here. And now he's smarted for it. He's paying for it. He's paid for it. He's dead. But he's not the only one that's paying for it. My children have paid for it. Is it right for her to blame Elimelech, her husband, for what has happened? Or maybe she blames herself. What? If I never married you in the first place, I wouldn't have found myself out here in Moab. Who should she blame? A husband or herself for marrying him? Challenges, choices, and God's great providence. It's funny how verse 5 tells us what Naomi was left without, but not what she was left with. And we'll come back to that at the end. Husband is dead, both of her sons are dead. Naomi now has to make the decisions for the family, or what's left of the family. It's a situation that many women find themselves in today, isn't it? For one reason or another, many women are left with having to make decisions for what's left of a family. Naomi has to determine the direction of her life and the lives of her daughters-in-law. And she seems to make better decisions than her husband because they, because they end up going back to Bethlehem. But then, maybe it wasn't a hard decision. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Can you notice the distinction between the Moabites and God's people? The Lord had visited his people and given them food. More than we can talk about right now, but just notice the distinction. Here we see, we see providence on two levels. Wow. One, God has visited his people. Remember there was in famine. God graciously now has revisited his people. Two, <clears throat> but 
The question is, how did Naomi find out? God had visited his people, but how did Naomi find out that God had visited his people? Because she never went to, she never, no CNN, right? No BBC International. She, how did she find out? She happened to overhear it in conversation. Look at, look at this as a mark of God's providence. Talk about light in the midst of dark times. Naomi, check it. Naomi is in the wrong place at the right time. Hey. It's mad. She's in the wrong place, Moab, but in the right place in the fields at the right time. So that she can overhear this particular conversation. Coincidence? Random chance? And notice, she wasn't sitting down at home paralyzed by her circumstances. So this is a hard point to make. But I think it would, it would be an injustice if we didn't. She wasn't sitting down at home paralyzed by her circumstances. How many of you know she could have been mourning the loss, not only of her husband, but also of her two sons? A lie? That would have been understandable. But she who is a widow is out and seemingly working in the field trying to support her widowed daughter-in-laws and herself. Wow. See how the Bible is deep? It's not just wide in terms of holy per chapters, right? Holy per pages. It's a big book. But it's also deep in terms of the content and the richness of the content. It's wide and deep. See, we'll see a similar act of providence with Ruth. Mum's struggling in a difficult, dark circumstances, but mum's there grinding, working, trying to support the family. Again, ain't nothing new, is it? When we look around at the ladies in our culture. But we're going to see Ruth emulate that later on. And I'm saying that she follows her mother-in-law's example as she is gleaning in the field. God provides for her in an extraordinary way. If you've read along or you're familiar with the book. At this point, I think it would be fair to say to us by way of application that there is a time for mourning and grief. No doubt over Death or difficult circumstances. Pray for our sister Tracy. She lost her mum a couple of weeks ago. It's hard. It's devastating when that happens. And, and there, are, there, are, there are many, you know, sitting under the sound of my voice that have experienced that. My wife has experienced that. I've experienced that. And there's a time for mourning and there's a time for grief over death or difficult circumstances. But then there's a time to move on and a time to get back to areas of responsibility and regular patterns of life. Amen. See, we can be in the house waiting for God. We can be in the house waiting for God, not realizing that God is out in the field waiting for us. We don't want to stay in that place, if you like, where God isn't. doesn't mean that we don't visit that place. It's a real place. 
Jesus, when he went to the tomb of Lazarus, what did he do? He wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. There's a time for mourning. And I think this is really helpful for brothers and sisters who can be given to depression and isolation. Are you mourning excessively? Are you at home lonely in a solitary type confinement when you should be back at work, when you should be back socializing? I suppose no, because you're here, right? You're here. And maybe, who knows, maybe you've been away for a little while. Or you're tempted to stay away. God made us social creatures. You know what I'm saying? What does it say in Proverbs? About the person that isolates themselves, they seek their own desire and they rage against all good wisdom. Isolation is not a good place to be. Are you imprisoned in isolation and seclusion when you should be in fellowship? May God help us in that regard. Amen. Now I see verse 6 as more than mere coincidence. That's her over here in this conversation. I see it as greater than just random chance. But working, if you like, God's providence working in conjunction with human choice is quite mind-blowing. I would see this as God's gracious providence allowing her to overhear this great news. Verse 7. So, on that basis, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Good for you, Naomi. Sounds... Sounds like a wise choice to me. I mean, she could have stayed where she was. There was a famine. There was, sorry, there was no famine in Moab. But she makes a choice to go back home. To be with her people and to be with God's people. Essentially to be with God. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Look, I'm going home and you're with me, but... Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, your husbands and your father-in-law, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Like, then she kissed them and she lifted up their voices and they wept. It was an emotional time. Now we will see in a minute that Naomi, right, She's got issues, no doubt, like all of us, amen? Naomi's got her issues, but she's a woman of integrity. See, and she puts Orpah and Naomi's needs before her own. You must remember that, listen, she has no source of income, number one. Remember that culture? You ain't got a husband. (laughs) It's not like now, that independent single lady. It's It's not like now. And, it's, um, and, it, and the funny thing is, it's only really since the 50s and the 60s that women have really become independent in the way that they are. And I mean, back, back, no source of income because she's got no husband. Two, she ain't getting any younger. If her sons were old enough to get married back then, and it's been 10 years, verse 4, she's at least in her 40s, if not her 50s, maybe even her 60s depending on how old she was when she had her sons, right? Plus, number three, the fact that she runs the risk of being lonely and on her own literally for the rest of her life. 
yet she doesn't put pressure on her daughters-in-law. You see that? You know that sometimes in-laws can put pressure on their children who are married and then indirectly on their children's spouse. Can I get a witness? Don't do it if you're a parent. It's tempting. I'm a parent. And I still feel like I know what what my kids should be doing in my eyes. Now, obviously, if you're talking about following the Lord and walking in his will and in his word, that's a good thing. But then there's some things that we don't know is the will of God God or not, right? As parents. And the temptation is is for us to... Because we see them as still five and six. And you know what? If you're a child of a parent and you're big and you're married, don't have it done to you. Protect your wife, protect your husband from a dominating mother-in-law, from a domineering or overbearing father-in-law. May God give you discernment because you've still got to love your parents. You've still got to, you know I'm saying, to some degree live with them and them also with you. Parents, follow Naomi's example here. Give your children options. Don't manipulate them according to your own desires and your own selfish needs. Incidentally, Naomi uses, it's funny, as she encourages them to go and live their own lives. She uses the covenant name of God here. She uses Yahweh. Yahweh, the God who is committed to those who are his. And it's like she's just, she's, it's like she's just entrusting them. The Lord will take care of you. You know what I mean? I don't know what I'm going back home to. But you're familiar. This is you. This is your surroundings. This is where you come from. So stay where you're familiar with. See, we must also trust that God is a covenant keeper and that he can take care of our kids. And the funny thing is, <clears throat> Ruth understands this, that God is able to keep on another level. She understands that God is committed to his own to the point where she's like, like Ruth's like, I ain't going back to Moab. Oh, I'm not staying in Moab. I want to be with you, Naomi. You know, I want to be with God's people. Essentially, I want to be with God. Look at verse 10. This is how I know she's saying that. And they said to her, no, this is um, Orpah and Ruth in response to Naomi. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, look, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. I'm going to just leave that one and let it ring out. I'm too, listen to, I'm too old, she says, to have a husband. And I've got question mark, question mark, question mark next to that. How many of you know that in dark times, we say things that aren't necessarily true? See, I'm, see, I'm not sure if what she said there is completely true. She might be older, but it doesn't mean that God can't provide her with a husband, does it? Or does it? How many of you know that this is a very difficult balance to strike? For ladies who may feel that they are past the age where they will ever get married. And the balance is, this is, the, what's, this is what's hard to strike. You may, as an older woman, not get married. But you may well be married. 
as an older woman. See, it's very difficult not to go to either extreme, but just to hold a balance. See, ladies are like, they get to the point sometimes where they're like, I ain't looking for no man. I don't ever want to get married. I'm not interested. It's true, isn't it? A lady can get to that point because of her circumstances and because of potentially choices that other people have made that have affected them, potentially choices that they themselves have made, right? I know that's true. See, or they can go to the other extreme, right? Where some ladies say, you know what? I can't function as a single person. I'm incomplete. Everyone else is getting married and having babies apart from me. See, that's the other extreme. And it's, like I said, it's a hard balance to strike. And I'm feeling you, ladies. You know what I mean? But don't be like... How about the guys? I thought about this, man. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm happy to stand corrected. But the guys, one of the extremes for the guys, they say, you know what, I've been waiting a long time to get married. I can't find this Christian woman that I've been looking for. You know what, I'm going to go find me a woman. Hey, don't care if she ain't saved. Can't be waiting on God no more. It's long. I, I would probably say that I would probably I would probably be one of the guys, one of those guys that would say that if I'm waiting all ten years and can't get married now. I'd be like, this is long. I, I may not say it in fellowship. Oh, in church, I'm not going to say it right here. But trust me, you know what I mean. Right in the back somewhere, and in my prayer closet, I'd be like, Lord. <clears throat> But it's funny because if, if you as a man do that, I'm not waiting on God no more, what are you doing? You're acting just like those in the days of the judges. You are doing that which is right in your own eyes. And for the ladies, either one of those extremes you go to, it's the same thing. Now, it's, it's, it's acting like everybody else. Now, <clears throat> now, I gave you the extreme for the guys. I said, I ain't waiting no more, this is long. But I couldn't think of the other extreme for the guys. On a level. Like, I honestly couldn't. Like, what is the opposite extreme for the guys? And I, wonder, I wonder if there is one. You know what I mean? Because the, the mans are like, you know what? This is a lot, I'm ducking out. They either say it, and they'll, they're like, or they'll say, and, they'll, and where are they? They're gone. Because they're gone to do what they said they're going to do. I don't ever recall a guy saying, you know what? I'm not looking for a woman. I'm not interested. I'm going to stay single. I never met that guy. You know, it, you know what I mean? He's like, either it's, either it's on, you know what I'm saying, or I'm out. But when you do see that guy, that's really, really rare. You know what I mean? But both of those pictures, the guy and the girl, could find, themsel- could find themselves in a place where there's a tendency to give up hope. You know what I mean? And I think with the guys, you know, they, 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 yeah. they start probably tampering with stuff that's unhealthy. You know what I mean? They, I don't see the guys ever give up hope, is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think this will be an interesting talking point Thursday night at community group. Ladies, <clears throat> back to the text. 
Be like Naomi, but not on this point. She says, turn back my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope. See, does Naomi not have hope? But we understand how she's feeling right now, right? If, even if I should say, I, even if I, I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait another 20 years until they're grown? You'd be old yourself. Would you therefore refrain from her? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says. Now, her circumstances are difficult. I'm not sure I would go as far as some would say that the, that the hand of the Lord is against Naomi here. But I would say that he has allowed it. He has allowed it. And I think she's in a terrible place because her husband made a bad choice. You know what I'm saying? He made a bad decision to go to Moab. I don't think that can be denied. And the Lord, check it, the Lord uses the circumstances to bring her back to Canaan, to bring her back to Bethlehem by his grace and in, and in his amazing providence. Like, like Joseph. You know, Joseph... He could have said the same thing, sold into slavery, accused of rape, thrown into prison, 17 years of distress. But Joseph didn't say, I'm without hope. He didn't say, the hand of the Lord is against me. Listen to how he saw his circumstances. In Genesis 45, verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, now remember, his brothers, all of that stuff I just said, all of the bad stuff, so Joseph said to his brothers, he says, look, come near to me, please. And he took out a nine millimeter and emptied the clip. He didn't do that, did he? Not just because they never had nine millimeters in Egypt. He says, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother. Because they didn't know it up until that point. It's me, Joseph, look, whom you sold into slavery Who, in, in Egypt. Who did it? They did it. Just like who crucified Jesus? The Romans did, and the Jews. Which one was it? Both of them are guilty. But it was a part of God's plan. How, how scary is that? They chose to do what they did and nailed him and, and accused him. And, just like Joseph's brothers and sisters, bro, brothers did. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. How amazing is that? Even though what they've done was wrong. Because you sold me here. And he repeats it. He reiterates the fact that they did it. Right? But then he says, For God sent me before you to preserve life. Can you see how God's providence, God's sovereignty is working together in conjunction with the sinful decisions of men. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. You see, you see the outcome of what happens? Verse 8, so it was, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow! He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Man! And then listen to chapter 50, verse 20, kills it. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. 
You're culpable. You're responsible for your own actions. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Wow. Joseph, unlike Naomi, Joseph wasn't bitter. He understood God's sovereignty, God's providence, as it worked in parallel with man's responsibility. Wow. Listen to a quote from John Piper. When it seems that God is farthest from you or has turned against you, he is actually laying foundations for your greater happiness. If you ain't heard nothing that I've said today, please hear that. The hand of the Lord is against me, Naomi says. To some degree, to use Naomi's own words from verse 13, this is the voice of bitterness. She was bitter. And she hasn't finished sharing the whole of her heart yet. Wait till she gets to verse 20 and 21. Don't get bitter, my brother, my sister, in your circumstances. Trust in God's providence because God is up to something. You have to believe that. Not just because it's true. God is up to something. God is all the time working all things together for good. Romans 8, 28. Light in the midst of dark days. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Oprah kissed their mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Like Oprah, I mean Oprah, (laughs) decides to go back to what she's familiar with which is the good, natural choice. Naomi responds in verse 15, speaking to Ruth. And she said, look, see, Naomi, see, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Oprah. Notice, what has she gone back to? Her gods. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. She's gone back to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go do what your sister-in-law is doing, isn't it? But Ruth said, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For How am I going to tell you this? How am I going to show you? For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Where, and, and there will I be buried. Sounds quite final. In, 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 in Ruth's thinking. May the Lord do so to me. It's like she's bringing a curse upon herself now as she says. It's like a vow. You know what I'm saying? And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now, Oprah never needed no more encouragement, no, no, no more convincing. She'd gone. Right? But look, look, Ruth's response to Naomi, you know, is best understood in contrast to Naomi's statement in verse 15. She's got, Oprah's gone to her, she's gone to her other, she's gone to her gods. See, it's all about worship. Everything we do is about worship. Our desires, our hopes, our dreams, they all find their roots in worship. Verse 19, so the two of them, 
not three of them. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. In a male-dominated society, Naomi and Ruth must determine their own survival without the, benefits of hus- without the benefit of a husband each, but with the help of God. See that? See? There's a statement right that runs throughout Genesis 37 to Genesis chapter 50, which is the story of Joseph. And the, and the statement is, look at Joseph. His, his brothers then just left him, just, just like n- nearly kill him and leave him. But the Lord was with Joseph. Uh-uh, look at Potiphar. Tell lie on him and, 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 and say that she, he raped her and Joseph's in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. You know what I'm saying? He's in there rotting in a, in a prison cell. Like I said, 17 years of darkness for Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph. At the moment, Ruth and Naomi don't see it because they're in a dark time in their lives. See, and we're talking about light in the midst of dark days. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the chatty, chatty women, right, look. They said, ooh, look, is, wait a minute, is this Naomi? You know the one we've been chatting about for 10 years who ain't been around, we was wondering what happened to her. Huh? hey, Naomi, it's good to see you. Naomi's like, see, what you hear next from Naomi is honest. It's heartfelt, it's a genuine response. You know the type that you rarely get when you ask someone how they're doing? Right, she's verse 20. So she said to them, It's like she knows them. <laughs> it's like she knows. Them. She said, Don't call me Naomi. Can't know you lot. No, she, that's, that's not the inference of the text. She says, Don't call me. She's consumed with her own issues, right? Don't call me Naomi. Pleasantness. Call me what? Mara. You know what Mara means? Bitter. It's, it's, it's from the, 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 the waters of Meribah. You know what I'm saying? I think that's the root word for Mara, where it, 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 the water was bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I can hear one of them. You know them American women when they speak and, and they've got their hand on their hip and they're angry. Don't call me Na- Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full in her estimation and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasantness? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now this is an honest answer with regards to how she's feeling. She feels that she's lost everything. Husband, children, Oprah, right? The future looks dark. But notice that in her depression, Naomi overlooked and failed to value Not what she'd lost, but what she'd gained. She'd gained a Moabite daughter-in-law who would actually be the key to her future. And not just her future. Our future. And that's linked to the fact that this story is the romantic, in brackets, love story of the road to redemption. There's more going on in this. 
Can you see what Naomi can't see? Light in the midst of, she can only see the darkness, but light in the midst of the darkness of the day. Verse 22 says, Naomi returned and Ruth. Oh my gosh. And Ruth, the Moabite. And it, and it keeps on emphasizing who she is because it seems like she's nothing and she's worthless. She's a Moabite. But when the, when the Lord opens our eyes to see, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, is with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They've come back full circle, haven't they? Right back to where they started originally, or at least where Naomi started, but now here's Ruth with her. How was God going to get Naomi How is God going to get Ruth to Bethlehem? Because she's going to be there for a particular purpose that I can't go into now. Time is way gone. And I'm now spilling over into next week's message. Has this happened by random coincidence? Has this happened because of human choices? Or has this happened because of God's providence? We'll see as the story continues to unfold next week. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word being replete with examples of your people going through difficult periods in their lives. Thank you, Father, that you don't You don't pretty up or put makeup on or hide the warts and all with regards to your people and and where they're at. Thank you for Naomi's brutal honesty with regards to her bit, how she's feeling, Lord. But then thank you for helping us to see what she didn't see. Just a beautiful tapestry, Lord, that you were weaving. Lord, on the backside of a tapestry, it looks like a mess. But when you turn that tapestry around, wow, it's beautiful. It's a work of art. I pray that you'd help us to see not only your purposes here, Lord, for Naomi and for Ruth, but also for our own lives, Lord. As we look and things look dark and things look terrible and things look distressful and despicable and we're in debt and we're depressed and it's just disastrous, Lord. Help us to know that you are Yahweh. You are the covenant-keeping God. And And that not because we're good, but it's because of the covenant that you made with it. You made a promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations, that his seed would be like the stars of the sky, that his seed would be like the sand on the seashore. And that is true. Even today we look and look at biological Israel. Wow. But Lord, that's not fundamentally speaking about biological Israel. It's fundamentally speaking about your people that is not the seed of, that is Ishmael, but Isaac. It's in Isaac shall the seed be called because Isaac is the forefather of David who is the forefather of Jesus. And we see how, Lord, this story relates directly to that. And we're grateful that because of Jesus, 
we get to enjoy the benefits of the covenant of Abraham when we put our faith in him who died on the cross for our sins. What a horrific and horrible story that was on face value to the naked eye. But again, you are weaving your tapestry and we get to understand that now as we look back with hindsight. Help us as we travel through this book of Ruth, Father, we pray that we would see light in the midst of darkness in Jesus' name and through the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.